20. We're back in our series in Revelation, uh, chapter 20. Two more chapters to go. We should be finishing up in August, I believe it is. We'll have a little bit of a break here and there, but be finishing up. Um, so we're kind of in the ninth inning of this, this ball game. And uh, just to kind of give a picture where we are, it's ninth inning, and, and uh, maybe it's the middle of the inning, and there was just a, a, a ball hit to shallow left field. A runner advanced to first base, and uh, the ball got thrown and got, went to the first baseman, and it looked like he was out. Um, the umpire called him out, but then there was a protest, uh, and they're doing instant uh, replay review right now. That's kind of where we are. We're in chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. We're kind of slowing down for a little bit because this is a section of scripture that is controversial. Um, so our pace has been more or less a chapter or so uh, for every message, uh, but we're slowing down here because we need some instant replay review. We need to think a little bit about these scriptures, these 10 verses and their meaning. So if you remember uh, three or four weeks ago, we covered a lot about the millennium. Um, we did a lot of review, and uh, so I'll, I'll remind you a little bit of that in a few moments, but uh, we did that, covered some background, and then today we're going to look in chapter 20. We're actually going to dig into chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Let's slow down a little bit and consider these truths. Um, these are, as I said, these are controversial segments of Scripture, but I, I don't want you to lose your focus that the main message in Revelation is abundantly clear, very simple and profound. Jesus wins, so stay close to Jesus. That's what it, what it really is. Jesus wins, so stay close to Jesus. It'll all be worth it. That's the main message. That's undeniable. And God's word is infallible and trustworthy. So, so though we may not always understand what things mean, God has made the most important things abundantly clear. And he, he knows what this means, so... So we can approach it and seek to understand and walk humbly and to not get nervous. So I don't want that idea of controversy to make you nervous. Put your faith in the Lord. He's sovereign. And, his, and the things that we must know, he has made abundantly clear. So we want to learn, though. We, the, the other things that are there are not trivial. They're important. So we want to learn. There's benefit to understanding these other things. So let's pray. Let's pray and ask him to give us wisdom. Ask him to give us understanding. Help us to to believe and obey his word as a result. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for who you are. You're, you're a good father. Um, you love us. Um, you're for us in Jesus. It's amazing. We thank you. And, and we ask for your help, Father. We want to understand these truths, and we want to, by your grace and power in our lives, believe and obey, to live out these truths, Lord God. There's nothing better than to walk with you in your ways, so help us to understand Help me, Lord, to teach. Help me to explain your word. Help me in this message that's a little more teaching heavy just to teach well. Uh, I'm aware of my weakness, a week at youth camp and very little sleep, um, but you are able. And so we look to you. We're excited for how you'll teach us and change our lives as a result. Be glorified in all this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me as I read through chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. 
and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. God's word from Revelation chapter 20. So this section of scripture speaks of this thousand years. That's where we get the word millennium. A millennium is a thousand years. And it speaks of a thousand year reign of Christ and his saints. And this is the controversy. What does this thousand year, what does this millennial reign mean? And, and really, when does it occur? What, what is it and when? Those are the two important and controversial questions. I want to dig into this. I want to, in particular, look at verses 1 through 3. And I want to tell you up front what I believe it teaches, and then I'm going to explain that, so uh, hang in there. But I believe that this teaches that Satan has been bound for these thousand years, which are the church age. Satan has been bound during this church age by the authority of Christ so that the Great Commission can be fulfilled. Satan has been bound during the church age the church age is the thousand years. The thousand years represents the church age by the authority of Christ so that the Great Commission can be fulfilled. And when that work is done, he'll be released for a time. There'll be a final battle. Christ will return with his armies, vanquish the enemy, and, and judge Satan and, and his minions forever and bring uh, everlasting joy in his new creation for the faithful. That's what I believe... Um, and I'm going to try to explain why I believe that's what the Scripture teaches. Well, first off, though, just to revisit uh, what we did a few weeks ago, a month ago, with our review. Uh, so who was here for that, if you were here the four weeks ago? So a good amount of us, okay. Um, so, and we have a manuscript still available. It was a really dense teaching time, uh, different than normal. Um, and and uh, we went through a lot of different things. First off, I said up front, and this is really important to get, uh, there is no official position on the millennium in King of Grace Church. So you don't have to believe that the millennium uh, is the church age. You don't have to believe that it's after Christ's return. You don't have to believe that it's before Christ's return, a literal thousand years. Or We don't have a position as a church on that. So our elders don't have a position. I actually haven't had a detailed conversation with our elders, so I can't say exactly what their position would be. Our family of churches doesn't have a position on this. There's no position required. Now, having said that, I would want you to know that, that 
majority of pastors in Sovereign Grace would believe that the thousand years represents the church age, would believe in, in line with what I'm teaching. I haven't always believed this, by the way. Until about 16 years ago, I had a historic premillennial view of, of the millennium. So, um, so it hasn't always been my view. Uh, all that to say, there's not, uh, no position required. So relax um, in this and, and um, listen and learn, perhaps. Now, I'll say, and you'll hear me say as I go through, that doesn't mean it's of no value. I think it's of great value, and, and that's why I'm teaching it. If it was of no value, I'd just say, well, here are the positions, and let's move on. I think it has a lot of impact on how we understand our Christianity, and I'll get to that near the end. Um, so that's what we did. I talked about that up front, and then I took time to look at the historical views of the millennium and, and told you that for the majority of the church, the history of the church, the majority of church leaders have not held a... a premillennial position, and certainly not a dispensational premillennial position. The dispensational premillennial position is one that emerged in the 1800s, particularly the late 1800s. It became the dominant view of the millennium. Now, the dispensational premillennial position, there's a lot of syllables there, uh, basically they believe that uh, dispensational, they believe that God has dealt differently through different times, and he has dealt differently with ethnic Israel than he does with the church. And in line with that, they understand the, the millennium as a literal 1,000 years that is uh, a reign of Christ on earth after he returns. And that reign uh, is about fulfilling the promises to Israel that we find in the Old Testament. That's, that's kind of a, a way to sum it up, I think. Uh, that view emerged in the late 1800s. It has become the predominant view uh, in the West. And, and there are different thoughts on why that might be the case. Certainly, if that's your view, you're thinking, well, because the scriptures teach that. That's why that's the case. I, and I respectfully... Uh, understand and disagree with that. I don't think the scriptures teach it, but um, but there's other things. You know, there 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 was a uh, a very strong amillennial, postmillennial optimism before the Civil War and the two World Wars, and and so there was this view of the millennium that it's just things are going to get better and better, and the gospel is going to go forward, the world will change, and it'll be wonderful. Uh, and then there was a lot of drift away from the authority of Scripture, and that was all mixed together. And then those wars hit, and and people said, wait a second. We don't, we, we don't believe that. We believe the Bible. We're, we're not humanists, you know, in the sense that we're, people are just going to get better. Uh, and so they started to drift away from that. They saw the connection between those other views and liberalism and so forth. So that is probably part of the appeal. But it became the dominant view. Uh, so I talked about that. And then I spent the majority of the time uh, surveying a large number of scriptures. And you guys remember that? About a gazillion scriptures uh, going through the Old and New Testaments. I did that because I wanted you to see what all the other scriptures talk about. Um, and, and sometimes when you're trying to understand scripture, when you've got one passage that's hard to understand, the best thing is to look at what all the rest of the Bible says and then to weigh it. And what I would say is when the weight of the rest of the Bible kind of goes this way, then let this part of scripture go with it. Don't say, well, this says something different. And so that was part of that. As I looked at the all entirety of the Old and New Testament, I see, uh, and I, I think it's there, uh, I really don't see anywhere in the, those other verses that explicitly talks about a millennium uh, uh, that is going to occur a little thousand years after the reign of Christ. I don't see it anywhere else. There are, there are some passages that could say that, but nothing explicit. The weight of all the other passages set the say basically together that Christ is going to return. He's gonna, there's going to be a resurrection of the just and the unjust, the, the wicked and the faithful. He's going he's gonna to bring uh, judgment. 
and a judgment of rewards for believers and of eternal damnation for the wicked, and then there'll be a new creation, and those who are his will live in that new creation. So those are grouped together, and they're grouped together in a way that I think that is to be understood as immediate. They happen together time-wise. They're not spread out. They're always put together in all these other scriptures, and the weight of scripture says that again and again. So that's what I went through, uh, and I think that's important in, in wrestling with these things and weighing these things. By the way, this is, this is really why I have this view, more than what uh, Revelation 20 says. Uh, the reason I believe that the Revelation 20 represents this church age is because when I look at the rest of Scripture, the balance goes boom, and I, just, and I, and I can't uh, dismiss what the rest of Scripture says in terms of this. So that, just so you know that. I'd love to talk with you afterwards, by the way, on all these things. I'd, I'd be glad to uh, answer any questions you have. And again, I, I'm seeking to be submitted to the Word here so we can learn together. Uh, well, all that review, I think, helps us now as we enter into Revelation chapter 20 and understanding what's, what's here, uh, understanding what it's teaching. And, and, uh, and I would say in light of that background, uh, I believe Revelation 20 teaches something different than, than it, certainly the dispensational pre-mill view and also the pre-mill view. There's a historic pre-mill view that has a different view but still says that there's a literal, um, well, it doesn't have to be literal, but there's an age after Christ's return of, of the kingdom being here on earth. And uh, the teaching in that is that there'll, there'll be a kingdom that will be established, that will be resurrected believers there, and there'll be unresurrected people there as well. There'll even be unregenerate people there that he'll be reigning over them. They'll be dwelling together under the reign of Christ. It'll be on earth that's not yet renewed, so it still will be a fallen world where he will reign for this time period. And then at the end of that, Satan will be released uh, and he will once again deceive the nations. There will be a rebellion among the unregenerate uh, that are there on the earth, and then that will be overthrown. Then there will be final judgment in the new earth. So that's the teaching. But I believe that Revelation 20 um, can be understood easily in a very different way. So bear with me as, as we go through this. Uh, one of the things, I think it's in your notes to, to, un to understand in all this, is how we understand the book of Revelation. So if we're going to understand this passage, we need to understand how... Uh, the book of Revelation functions. And what you've been hearing as we've been going through it is the book of Revelation is full of what's called overlapping visions. Um, recapitulation is a word that's used. So there are these visions that come, right? We've seen that. Uh, I think we have a chart to show. You've seen this table. Uh, and we showed this earlier in the series. And there are seven cycles in Revelation. Seven vision cycles in Revelation. And, and each of those vision cycles speaks of the judgment of God. They speak of the promises uh, to the saints. So they speak of temporal judgment. They speak of promises to the people of God. And then they speak of the final judgment in some way. And you see that. We've seen that again and again, right? You remember going through, through that? So the first part, first five chapters, uh, you see that in the throne in heaven and the churches. And then you have in chapter six or eight, the, the seven seals, the, the judgments there. So this, this grouping of, of temporal judgments, promise of reward for the saints, and then the final judgment. The seven trumpets of Revelation 8 through 11. The seven signs of Revelation 12 through 14. The seven bowls of Revelation 15 through 16. And now the end we see the same sort of thing. So there's this repetition throughout Revelation that goes on. It's hitting the same things and there's an intensification of them as well. That's important to understand in interpreting Revelation that we recognize that there, are, there is this overlapping uh, aspect of these visions. Uh, one of the things that's really wonderful to get through it is there's always these promises for saints in all these cycles. So if you could show the next 
table. Um, there are all these promises. So in the seven cycles, we learn all these wonderful promises that are beckoning us to, to hang in there, to stay close to Jesus, to trust him because he's going to win. So we're promised his uh, complete reign and joy in the first cycle. Uh, there's a perfect and limitless number of saints we see. Uh, there's reward and fruitfulness in witnessing in the third cycle. Uh, blessed rest from our labors in the fourth. Reward for our readiness in, in the fifth. Uh, justice against evil enemies in the sixth. And then the full salvation of God in this final section that we're in. So all these wonderful promises. So that's going on in Revelation. And I think part of why that's happening, and it looks like there's seven cycles, um, is that through repetition and the drama, the message would be driven home. And again, the message is, Jesus wins. Stay close to Jesus, it'll all be worth it, right? That's the message. Uh, and so the repetition and the drama is so that when we're done with it, we get that. I hope, and it's been our goal, really, in this whole series, that that would be the thing that resonates in your mind and heart years from now as, as you look back. Uh, not Pastor Paul had this mill view, and I don't like that view. I don't want that to resonate. I hope you don't remember that if that's an issue. I hope you remember this main point. Jesus wins. Stay close to him. It will all be worth it. So there's these vision cycles emphasizing this. And then we we see as the cycles go on, um, the intensity grows, and then the clarity that there's a last and final battle that's coming grows. So it's not as clear early on. Uh, interpreters wrestle with the, the judgment from the throne. Does that mean the final judgment or does it mean something else? So they wrestle with the early ones. But later on, chapter 16 and then following, we start to see that this is a last battle that's coming. It's this last final battle. Jesus is going to come back and vanquish his enemies. Uh, and, and so I believe that Revelation 16, the cycle in that, the vision in 16, and then 19 and 20 are all about that same last battle. Um, and why do I believe that? Uh, well, one of the reasons is because Revelation uh, is consistent with the rest of the Bible and it refers to a lot of other passages. And there's another passage that's very important to understand when you look at Revelation 19 and 20. It's Ezekiel uh, 38 and 39. So I'm going to project that. If you have your Bible, you can just turn the pages back to 38 and 39. And this is, in Ezekiel, this is a prophecy of a last battle. And it's one event in Ezekiel. And he's going to use certain things to describe there's certain players in this battle. There are certain things that go on. I want you to listen because it's going to be important as we go back to 19 and 20 to understand what, what's going on, what, what is uh, being taught. So listen for mention of Gog and Magog. Listen for the aspect of a final battle. Listen for God's judgment through sword and fire, through sword and fire. And listen for this gory feast of the vultures that, that you'll hear. So I'm just going to read excerpts from Ezekiel uh, 38 and 39, starting in verse 1. The, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Jumping to verse 15. You will, uh, speaking to Gog and Magog now, you will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me. When through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Verse 19. For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath I declare on that day there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. 
the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall and every wall shall tumble to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and bloodshed I will enter into judgment with him and I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples, peoples who are with him torrential rains and hailstones fire and sulfur. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So far sounds a lot like Revelation, right? And then jumping to chapter 39, verse 17. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God. So now he's speaking to Ezekiel. Speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field. Assemble and come gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. And you shall eat the flesh, eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of he-goats, of bulls, all of them fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat fat till you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. And I will set my glory among the nations and all the nations shall, shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand that I have laid on them. So Ezekiel 38, 39, I trust that you see a lot of parallels with Revelation. Sounds very much the same and the same sorts of things going on. Now if we compare that passage, so you want, if you have it open, stay there. If you compare that passage, and maybe you can have your finger in chapter 19, we'll see uh, a lot of comparisons. So we covered chapter 19 uh, some weeks ago. And we see in chapter 19 that Jesus arrives with the armies of heaven on white horses and they conquer the kings of the earth with, and the nations with their armies. These, these armies are arrayed against them. It's through the sword of Jesus. So judgment is brought by the armies of God, Jesus' return with his people, through the sword. And, and then in chapter 19, uh, verse 17, are almost the exact words of Ezekiel 39, 17, where there's this, there's this invitation to a feast, right, for the vultures. It's kind of gory, but there's this feast of the vanquished for the vultures. So that's chapter 19. It's almost the exact same words. So we can see chapter 19 is corresponding to Ezekiel 38 and 39. We know that. Right? So those parallels are there. And then um, the beast and the false prophet are sent to everlasting judgment. God is exalted through them. Then turn to chapter 20. And we get a repeat performance, but now Gog and Magog are mentioned. Right? We saw Gog and Magog in 38 and 39. That's, that doesn't, that's not a common word in Scripture. <laughs> so there's a connection, obviously, in chapter 20 to the same one event in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So that's key to get. One event, Ezekiel 38 and 39, apparently two events in 19 and 20. Uh, now we, the nations are arrayed against the armies of heaven again in chapter 20, right after this millennial age, after Satan is released, there's the, the nations arrayed against the armies of heaven, and they're conquered again by fire this time. But remember, Ezekiel says they're going to be conquered by sword and fire. They're both mentioned as one event in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, two separate chapters here. Uh, and then Satan is thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet. Um, it says, actually, in verse 20, in the English translation, the beast and the false prophet were. But there's no verb there in the original language. It just says, where are the beast and the false prophet? Um, so that's important to get, too, because people understand 
Revelation in 19 and 20 as chronological. 19 happens first, and then uh, Jesus is returned. Then the millennial kingdom, Satan is bound. The millennial kingdom starts after Jesus' return, right? And then there's the final thing. So that premillennial view flows out of understanding 19 and 20 as two separate events. But Ezekiel 38 and 39 has them as one, and it's clear that both 19 and 20 refer to the same prophecy, one event in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So what I believe, it's consistent with what we've seen in Revelation, right? There's this repetition of visions, repetition from slightly different angles to emphasize different aspects. So 19 and 20 are repeating the same occurrence from different angles to emphasize different things going on. We've, we saw it earlier, too, chapter 16, by the way, right? We, when we looked at that some time ago, uh, it's the gathering of the nations. They assemble at Armageddon. So Revelation 16, 12 through 16, you can look back there and see the same thing. So, so that's another cycle. It's not a separate thing. We, we know 16 is, is the final battle. So 19 and 20. It, it's right in line with what we see throughout Revelation. And right in line certainly with, with Ezekiel. That there's this, and what I believe it teaches is that there's this really one final battle that's consistent with the entirety of Scripture seen from different angles. So now let's dig a little bit into uh, some of the other aspects that's, that in this that says that Satan is bound um, at the beginning uh, in, in verses 1 through 3. To emphasize in verses 1 through 3, we see that Satan is bound. So, so this is at the beginning of the chapter, and if my chronology is correct, Satan is bound before Christ's return. He's bound during these thousand years so that he might not deceive the nations. Um, so he, he's bound here, and what I've, I've said is that I believe that he's bound so that he might not deceive the nation, so that the Great Commission can be fulfilled. Um, and I would say that he's, he's not bound completely. Now, as people hear that, they say, wait a second, wait a second, is, is, is that true? As I look, at, as I look through Scripture, um, it certainly doesn't look like he's only bound partially. It, it looks like he's... Uh, it looks. Sorry, as I look through, through Scripture and I look at reality, it certainly looks like he's not bound. I see him working. Well, we'll, we'll get to that, so hang on to that question. We'll look, we'll look at some Scripture. Um, so he's bound and he's cast into the abyss. What is the abyss? Well, it's, it's the bottomless pit. The Greek, the Greek word is abyss. And, and this is a theme throughout Scripture. There's this place. It's a prison. It's a pit. It's a bottomless pit. It's a place where the enemies of God are put. It's a prison where they're stored, basically, and they're, and they're put out of the way, and it's a prison that can be opened and shut. All right, so you can look throughout Scripture um, about this. It's interesting in Jesus' ministry that the demons are confronted in Luke 8. We have that Scripture to put up, Luke 8, 30 to 31. Um, the legion, right, the story where this guy who's demonized, he's afflicted by a whole legion of demons. Jesus, it says, Jesus then asked them, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him, begged Jesus, not to command them to depart into the abyss. So they understand that there's this prison they can be thrown into, and they're begging Jesus, please don't put us there. First uh, Peter talks about the spirits. Uh, uh, Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And that word in prison is a, is a particular word, uh, speaking of the deepest parts of hell, of Hades. So it's not the final judgment, the lake of fire judgment. It's a temporary place to store God's enemies. It's a prison. Second Peter 2.4 as well says, uh, for God, God, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, 
So the word is Tartarus. It's a, it's a place. It's the same thing. It's this prison, this abyss. And we've seen it in Revelation already. We saw in chapter 9 that there's this abyss. And this abyss in chapter 9 gets opened. And all these demons come out of it. Uh, it says in chapter 9, The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star falling from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. So very similar to chapter 20. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. So these are demons, basically, being released out of the abyss onto the earth as part of God's judgment. And it says in verse 11 in chapter 9, They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he's called Apollyon. So it's Satan. He's, he's over. He's the chief fallen angel in the pit with them. Um, uh, we see that the evil beasts also come out of the pit. So in chapter 11, um, they come out of the pit and they attack their witnesses. Chapter 17, uh, they rise from the bottomless pit, then they go to destruction. So this abyss is a place of keeping God's enemies until final judgment, but it can be opened and closed. And so the use of the key language, that there's a key to open and close it. Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 18, or if you don't have a Bible, look up front. Before we say anything more, uh, it's important to see who has the key. Who ultimately has the key. Revelation 1, 17 through 18 says, Fear not, Jesus says, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Hades is the abyss. He has the keys. And it's because he has lived and died and risen from the grave. He has conquered. He has all authority in heaven and earth. So he holds the key. He controls who gets put in and who gets let out and when that happens. That's important to, to understand. So, getting into binding in light of that. So that Satan is bound with the great chain and put in the abyss. And it's locked. And he's, he's put there. And again, the question, okay, if that is happening now, Paul, in your view, why do we see Satan doing what he's doing? And verses are shared in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. It's very clear he's active. Um, it says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So who, who's behind the fact that unbelievers are not seeing the light and their eyes being opened? Satan. So he is active. This is, this is going on, right? 1 Peter 5.8, we're told that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. So he's out there prowling around doing stuff, right? Very clear in Scripture. 1 John 5, we know that we are from God, speaking of believers, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Wait a second. Is he bound or not? Is the whole world in his power? Well, those verses are very clear that he's doing these things, he's active, and what I would say is that, uh, is that he is bound. And I'm going to give you some verses on that. Um, he's bound in some way. He's not bound completely. He's bound from deceiving the nation. He cannot deceive the nations and control them and keep them from coming to know Christ through the gospel. So the Great Commission can be fulfilled. Um, 
So just a little journey through why I say that. So we know Christ has bound Satan because we see it elsewhere. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, he says, uh, speaking of deliverance ministry, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Uh, in Luke chapter 10, uh, the 72 return with joy. So they've been out ministering the gospel and delivering people from demonization. Uh, previously, the demons just held sway and did their thing and oppressed people. These guys are now experiencing great power to drive the demons out of people. So they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Later on, John chapter 12, Jesus is getting ready. He's approaching the, the cross, and he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. The ruler of this world will be cast out. Colossians chapter 2, it says he disarmed the rulers. Who? Jesus. How? In his death and resurrection. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Hebrews chapter 2, similarly in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. This is true for us now. He's overcome. He's been the devil has been cast out. Jesus is victorious. Now, we see this in Revelation as well. We visited some weeks ago, chapter 12. Do you remember the war in heaven with Michael? Uh, Michael's fighting against the dragon. Michael and his angels fight against the dragon, and he's defeated. And it says, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Now these have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell on them. But woe to you on earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So Satan is cast from spiritual authority, as we talked about when we, went, we addressed this chapter, by Michael as a result of Christ's victory, his death and resurrection. He's been defeated and he's been thrown down. He's no longer seated in a place of authority, but he still is active. And we now, in the gospel by the blood of the, worm, blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, we conquer in him. Uh, we overcome, even though the devil is, is active. This binding, this defeat of the devil, that though not complete but substantial, is why Jesus can say in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I know that's a ton of stuff and maybe it's really new uh, if you've not, not seen it. And again, I love to 
answer any questions. But I hope you see in Scripture that, yes, Satan is accurate, but yes, Satan is bound. We see that outside of Revelation we see that, don't we? I, I hope you do. And then in Revelation we see it as well. So we, we see this going on, that, that, he's, that he's bound and he cannot do all that he wants. He can't, and particularly, he can't deceive the nations. He can't bring his deception on such a large scale that the nations would all group together to actively and completely oppose the gospel. That's what's going on. That's the age we live in. He, he's, Jesus and his authority is keeping that from happening. So there's a binding of Satan, and now the gospel is going forward. Now, I hope, again, this makes sense. And as I said in the beginning, we don't require a position on this. But I do think there's a lot of merit in this position because I, I, I think it's a faithful biblical one. And I, I hope I've given you a plausible alternative, plausible from Scripture, Scripture saturated. That's what we're after. What, the, what does the Word of God say? 